So, Lisa, you remember this was a couple of years ago where the Wells Fargo CEO, Charles Scharf, apologized for uh, speaking pretty much out of the side of his neck concerning the limited pool of Black talent, um, because a lot of people are like, what? Wait a minute. What are you talking about? You remember that? It was a couple of years ago. I know I know pandemics yeah. are dog years, but it was a I while do, ago, right? Yeah, I do remember it, but I'm kind of shocked that it was a couple of years ago. Like, it feels like it was six months ago. Like, it's a very <laughs> familiar memory. And I was, yeah, so it's pandemic time, I guess. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, you know, he said it, he apologized and really got slammed for saying it. But I'm still seeing some of the same trends in the workplace that have the same sentiments. They're just not saying it publicly. Mm. And so I I really do think that um, that statement has some endurance to it. And we need to kind of think through what that means for hiring these days, especially as we're coming to through beyond a pandemic. So what say you? Let's do it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, look. I am sick and tired of these people that keep saying that there is a limited pool of whatever talent, limited pool of women, limited pool of people of color, limited pool of anybody. I, I'm, it's like a broken record. And I'm looking around thinking to myself, that just can't mathematically be true for every right. single industry. It just, it can't be true. And so you hear people like, this guy at Wells Fargo saying there's a limited pool of black talent. It's like, okay, here we go with the finger pointing. We're, we're pointing at the employees rather than doing some critical reflection on what an organization may not be doing to attract those people. It just, it burns me up. It's, it is um, the blaming of the employee rather than the looking internally. And I think that that's a theme that has kind of threaded through a lot of our podcasts and the work that we're trying to do is this, persistent um, action or narrative where it's the problem of the individual or the group, right? Because we talk about that in sport with few women or uh, few folks with disabilities, few people of color participating in certain sports. And often it's, well, they don't want to, or they can't, or blankety blank blank, right? And never- never the organization looking internally about what they are or are not doing to create inclusivity and accessibility for you know the kind of non-normative athlete of the white male Mm, Um, mm -hmm. so it just echoes of that seeing it you know it's not Wells Fargo's fault it's these other external forces that they have no control over you know absolutely not me kind of thing exactly Exactly. It can't be me. It can't be us. Let me throw my hands in the air. And, you know, 
I can't say I was shocked, even though I know the financial industry relatively well. Um, my mother um, worked for 46 years in the banking industry as a teller. And this is actually very funny, Lisa. So I, I jokingly say to my mom all the time that she worked in the same building for 46 years, but worked for four different banks. So she worked for the bank when it was Central Fidelity, and then it became Fidelity, and then it became I don't know what it was. And then it was Wells Fargo when she retired. It just, yeah, it kept changing. And she used to talk about some of these things all the time. And it's like, wait a minute, there's plenty of folks out there. But again, it's that blame game of it's easier for me to blame individuals in this nebulous, quote unquote, talent pool, this non-existent talent pool to actually look internally. Mm -hmm. My question is always, okay, well, what have you done to attract a very deep and wide pool? And What have you done to build relationships within the community or within those professional communities? And this just, this stinks of uh, HR laziness in my mind. It just stinks of laziness because you can't Mm -hmm. build it and they will come when it comes to certain industries. You just, that's just not reasonable. And it's easy to place blame because, oh, well, we put energy into so many other things. Then if, if they really wanted to work, they would apply. What? Get out of here. Well, and I'm thinking as you're talking that the banking industry in particular, um, you know, has a very painful and unpleasant yes. history when it comes to exclusion. And so yes. that is almost certainly contributing. And to not really reckon with that in, in your hiring practices, in how you're recruiting, retaining and promoting um, bankers, I guess, of color mm, would mm-hmm. be very poor and remiss, you know, and um, right, right, and that's going to be true of other industries too, but and sport being one of them, but banking, in particular, in the U.S. context, you know, um, right. So yeah, right. It's, it's very, it's lazy, and I think ultimately what the laziness is doing is maintaining the status quo right so this to the Mm -hmm. laziness is intentional um whether that's a conscious intentionality or not i don't know but um we know that Mm -hmm. whiteness doesn't generally operate you know in the Mm -hmm. light right um Mm -hmm. and so not being proactive about how to recruit where to recruit how you write job descriptions um, yes. The kind of interviews you're offering, like, is it like nine interviews? <laughs> you know, right? Like, are right. Times of the day that are really inconvenient. You know, mm-hmm. like, how are you opening up that process? And right. then, how are you treating your employees once you come in? Because, like we've talked about with sport, you mm-hmm. can bring people in, women, folks of color, folks with disabilities. Um, but if you do nothing to change the culture in finance, in banking, then those folks won't stay. So the talent pool is almost that's right. a meaningless point, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. And, you know, you're making me think of something, Lisa. I remember when my mother was about to retire, just a few years before she was about to retire. And she said there was just so much pressure on sales rather than the actual banking, you know, so how many accounts can we get open and how many, how many savings accounts can we open? And what's frustrating, I think, is that, okay, that amount of energy that you put into those communities to try to coax them into opening accounts and getting loans and all these other things, 
the same energy you put into trying to make them into your customers, let's put that very same energy into bringing them into the industry as a career path for them, knowing that obviously this country was built on not Black folks' finances, okay? So in fact, this entire country We've had a lot of time tearing down the wealth, the little bit of wealth that Black people actually did have. Um, and so given that, are we putting any effort into swinging the pendulum the other direction? Um, Lisa, I need to do a little bit more research on this, but you know, we've, we've already talked about you know, Black Wall Street and Tulsa and so forth. Um, but also, it's another thing I'm doing a little bit of research on. I heard it on a podcast, but I haven't read on it yet, on what's called drown towns. So Black communities that were in low-lying areas that were purposefully drowned so that their businesses, it, it's the, the water equivalent of great fires where they burn down entire Black neighborhoods, businesses, et cetera. So we have all that going on. So that means that, yes, there are still folks that are Black and other ethnicities that are interested in finances. But again, you have to recruit in context knowing and embracing the history of what's happened to Black folks and money and understanding money. So, you know, I don't think we can uh, separate those two, even as we recruit folks into even considering uh, a, uh, a career in finance. So that piece too. But Lisa, we haven't yet talked about the, uh, you know, kind of the ripple effect, right? So if organizations aren't doing a good job with recruitment of of especially people of color, then how is that inherently disenfranchising and completely burning out the people that you do have working for you? It's just right, right. one problem creates 10 more, right? Yeah. And if you do have a small number of folks of color in your organization, they are most likely going to get tokenized. We've also talked about, you know, diversity mm. and how like the folks mm-hmm. with marginalized identities are the ones who get picked to be on the on the diversity committees that then have no money and no power, right? Or you have um, someone who's brought in, usually a person of color as a DEI person, and then they start to kind of like shake (laughs) the ground a little bit. And then, you know, the white white power maintenance kind of like kicks into drive and that person doesn't last very long. So it's like this elastic that keeps snapping back. And so I think that for those people who are in the company, they're have an un, they have an undue or undue level of burden, right? In part mm-hmm. it manifests because the company does such a crappy job of hiring a diverse work- workforce. Mm-hmm. 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 And you know, Lisa, I'm sure that you've heard this before on you know in positions you may have been in and hearing decision makers. I mean, these are the lamest excuses I've ever heard for. I mean. We know that based on the data saying there's not enough in the pool of a particular group, just based on the data, it's just not true. Right. And we also know that there there's like a laundry list of excuses that are made for not even looking for them. So, you know, the, the biggest one that I hate is, well, I'm down for DEI, I'm down for diversity and inclusion, but they've, they've got to be qualified for the job as if the two aren't the same. Yes. Out of here. Yep. Are you serious? Yeah, right. it's just the, the excuses are so easy to create and people buy it. People buy it and say, oh, it, it's it's the it's the back end way of saying I don't 
I, I think that we're going to need to reduce our level of qualification and skill in order to get the diversity that we want, when in fact, you don't have to lower the bar. There's plenty of people that can clear the bar with ease. You just have to go get them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such an excuse. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like we are not able to hire mm. um, employees of color. So we blame them for that. And then, um, you know, em- white employees in the workplace look around and say, oh, well, there aren't that many employees of color here. Therefore, there can't be that many who are qualified. And then when the organization attempts to increase the ranks of employees of color, they've already either implicitly or explicitly created the culture that the bar had to be dropped, which then that's just right. feeds into the stereotype. That's not true at all. Right. But it just it like that's right. It feeds itself in a cycle. That's right. Kind of hiring uh, incompetency, I suppose. Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Well, and. <laughs> I'll have to go back and find it, Lisa, and maybe we can um, share it with our listeners and especially anybody that's on our Unfazed podcast uh, Facebook page. There was this great graphic. I don't know if you saw this, Lisa, but it was this great graphic that showed um, all of the Supreme Court justices thus far in comparison to uh, Katanji and how the the qualifications you know people are like well yeah she's just there for whatever reasons just for diversity but not for qualifications but when you look at the grid like the cross chart of everyone else's there were supreme court justices in the past that didn't even have a law degree that sat on the supreme court of this country right and she's a graduate of harvard law and was editor of the harvard law review but she's not qualified enough get out of here yes preconceived notions preconceived well yeah notions. i mean and that makes me think of hillary clinton right the most <sighs> qualified presidential candidate candidate in decades and, right. Yeah, and right. She, like right. qualifications don't mean shit, right? Right. Uh, exactly. When we're about racial or gender bias, yeah, because the only reason that she could possibly, uh, Katanji uh, Brown, could be possibly nominated is because she's a black woman, not because she graduated from Harvard Law, not because she has a pristine history, um, already nominated to a appeals court. You know, like can't be that. No, it has to be something else. It has to be something suspicious about it has to be something else. There has to be something where she doesn't meet the standard and someone is making an exception in order to make sure that we have race on the bench. Come on now. And and that's exactly what people are thinking, or at least that's the rationale that they're creating for themselves. That's right. just simply right. untrue. But we do it all the time. And we know Supreme Court justice is not a regular old job, but we do that for regular old jobs all the time. Oh, well, she's the only woman, so she may not be as qualified, but we needed a woman because we don't have any. Um, and and dare I say this, Lisa, you just bring reel me back in if I'm going too far. This connects back to a little bit of what we were saying about imposter syndrome, too. It's like right. how many yeah. times and, and this is not a brag or toot your own horn thing, Lisa, but how many times have we showed up for whatever, whether it was an actual job or consulting or volunteering or teaching? And we're thinking, mm, 
I know I'm not a heavyweight in this room, but I, I bring some things to the room, but I'm not a heavyweight to the room. Only to find out after everybody else opens their mouth that, oh, I actually might be a heavyweight in this room. And I'm going to do it with humility and to the best of my ability, but I came in not thinking that. Right. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Yeah, I would say that is an experience um, white, straight men rarely experience, um, particularly those uh, who are kind of middle, upper class folks. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. but it's a predominant experience, I think, with individuals who experience marginalization in this country, this uh, imposter feeling. And I wonder how that's going to translate when... um, Judge Katanji Brown is from the court, right? Right, right, exactly. And, you know, I think that translates to, you know, many folks that can be tokenized. I think, you know, I don't know. I'm just grateful that at least we're in an administration that's willing to challenge people to get out of their comfort zone and at least talk about these things, right? Because, Ruth Bader Ginsburg tried to get us to talk about these things and she spent her entire life um, speaking on topics that continue to be improperly painted as divisive. Um, But now we're at a place where, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it all day. And especially really desperate employers who say they're not only desperate for employees, but they're also desperate, supposedly, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now you're being forced out of comfort zones to talk about these issues at the same time. If you're really that desperate for Mm -hmm. your business, your organization, et cetera, to move forward, you now have no choice. Like I I feel like the post-pandemic employee, supposedly employee shortage is the perfect way to push employers' backs up against the wall to make them really respond rather than hanging out in their own comfort in the past because we see that too. And what does it look like for them to finally come out of their comfort zone? But then, but they're not really right. Like, mm-hmm. I think, or maybe they're um, they attempt to, and then they realize that oh, this is raising some questions and making me uncomfortable, and it means I have to maybe rethink the whole way my company is structured in terms of its hiring and promotion, et cetera. Et cetera. So I don't want to do that. So we'll just then shift the blame to the fact that there's not a pipeline or there's no talent pool. Or, you know, women don't want these jobs or whatever, right? Oh, my gosh. See, this. So, Lisa, this reminds me. So I just came back from the park, y'all, watching my little boys ride their new bikes. And this park that we go to, we call it, it's it's called Allen Pond Park, but my little boy calls it Pond Park. So we went to Pond Park and there's hills and so forth. And he's trying to get used to this bike and he's trying to get used to switching gears on the bike. And so he stops in the middle of the hill and looks back and says, mommy, I can't do it. And I said, what's wrong, son? You know, you know, hit your gear right before you get on the hill. Don't wait until you're on it and hit the gear. And so (laughs) Kendrick said, but mommy, this hill shouldn't be so steep, right? It's the hill's fault. Okay. It is the hill's fault that it is too steep and I can't get up it. Right. 
instead of saying, mommy, I have to work yeah. a bit harder on switching my gears or mommy, I have to get my legs stronger or mommy, I need to get my momentum up a bit more going downhill right before I go uphill. It's the hill's fault. It is not Kendrick's fault that he can't it. get up that hill, right? It. That's what this reminds me of right now, that decision makers and people who are hiring are saying it is the, the hill's fault. Okay, it is not my fault. It's not my organization's fault. I've been here for 20 some years. I've done the best that I can. It is not my organization's fault. It's the hill's fault, girl. I'm like, what? Oh, it's, are you serious? But that's exactly what Kendrick yeah. was saying. It's everybody's yeah. fault, but his, right? And he was probably quite, quite genuine in his expression, right? But I, I don't give that same uh, grace to these CEOs of um, companies, including sporting companies who make those excuses. I think that that's largely lazy and calculated. <laughs> right. Yeah. My, I, I'll give a pass to my beloved seven-year-old riding okay. his new bike. But as right. for the rest of y'all grown people who yeah. are stuck in... Um, fixed mindset thinking and not growth mindset thinking, eh -eh. Lisa and I are not giving you an inch. Okay. Not one yeah. inch. Okay, when it comes okay. to this. I want you to explain that uh, fixed mindset and growth mindset, because I think that actually could be a really useful concept for our listeners who are um, thinking about hiring or working in an organization that sucks at hiring uh, a racially diverse uh, task force <laughs> uh, employee. Oh force. my gosh. Oh, that is so good. Well, I'm, I'm still getting my arms around it a bit because I've been asked to work with a particular client on some of their strategic, uh, strategic planning. And it's actually with an organization that has a big gap where they have a lot of people that are new to the organization and then a ton of people that have been there their whole careers. And so we see a number of different things as far as generational gap, you know, their approach to work, et cetera. And, you know, one of the first things they mentioned was that we need to do this strategic planning, but it's not going to work unless we have some type of mindset, mindset shift for everybody. So the younger generation not accusing the older generations of not being equipped and the older generations not accusing the younger generations of, oh, you just want to do things new just for the sake of doing something new. Why can't we also hold on to things that still work? And so doing a little bit of research on the concept. And it's it's interesting because fixed mindset does everything to maintain the status quo and stay as comfortable as possible, right? So fixed mindset is, you know, I'm going to avoid challenges altogether. So that would be like Kendrick saying, mm -mm, I'm not even going up the hill at all. I'm just going to find a flat flat and just go for it, right? So avoiding challenges at all, ignoring criticism at all. And the best way to ignore criticism is usually by doing as little as possible, um, putting less effort in, um, or even your intelligence or talent is fixed. Whereas you think that there's no more that I can learn, or there's nothing else that that conference or that book or that training could ever teach you. Um, and usually it's the assumption that not only will I never improve, but in fact, I don't even need to improve because what I have going on right here is enough. That's fixed mindset. Growth mindset is, okay, I don't care if I have to fall up this bike 17 times to get it up that hill one time. I'm going to do it because every time I fall off, I'm learning something new about what to do or what not to do. Um, they learn from feedback and criticism. They put more effort in each time they try something. They keep trying and never give up. 
Um, so this reminds me of a good friend of mine who um, DNF'd on her 140.6 six times before she finally did it. Okay. That's a, a growth mindset. Um, learning by failure and also accepting that this will take time and hard work. So the growth mindset by definition assumes that something is going to be difficult. However, the outcome is worth the difficulty, right? And you would think everybody on the planet in endurance sport would get that because we do yeah. it every damn day, right? Yeah, yeah. But not so it, much. Not so much, right? So, you know, that that's what's so interesting to me is that growth mindset is inherent to, in my opinion, it's inherent to our athleticism, but I'm not sure if it's inherent to the business, the the, the back-end business of endurance sport, the organizations of sport, the clubs of sport, we do it all the time with our bodies, but well, we, we yeah. may not do it in organizations. That's a really great point because I'm thinking with tech too, right? It's always evolving and there's a massive grind, grind set mindset. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it might be a grind mindset. set. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. In relation to technology, how that is changing all the time and how can we be better? How can we use our bodies differently and how can we use technology to enhance our capacity to use our bodies differently, et cetera, et cetera. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, on that sense, we're like cutting edge, front edge of thinking about evolution and change. But you're right, that back end piece, kind of the the nuts and bolts um, that enable the growth mindset on the front edge is Mm -hmm. very fixed yeah and there's not a lot of um flexibility there or belief that you know something is structured improperly because while we're always innovating with this tech so why do we need to change anything on the back end versus yes we're innovating but we could innovate even more (laughs) right right there you go exactly 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 and so, you know, the, I think, you know, I'm, thank you for reminding me about the growth versus fix because I'm still learning about those particular topics. But I do think that's where, you know, when you go back to uh, the gentleman with Wells Fargo, his statement clearly came from a fixed mindset. I firmly believe that there is a, mi- a limited pool of black talent in the finance industry. And therefore, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing versus a growth mindset of, we need to do some things differently because even if he did believe there was a limited pool of black talent, which is not true statistically, um, but even if he did believe it, he never placed the blame on the organization to go out and find them and that growth mindset. So that was the first thing I thought of when I heard that on the radio a couple of years ago was that it's not true, but even if it was, you're still employee blaming once again, that it's their fault and not ours. I'm like, come on, you got to take some of that responsibility. Yeah, because rather because you could look at that and say, okay, there's this limited pool. Well, then what are we doing to be really competitive and really desirable as an employer to attract this quote unquote limited pool, right? Of black talent. And then if you actually went down that road, you would realize there's not a limited pool, but you would be shifting the way that you market yourselves, your culture, and that is Mm -hmm. going to be beneficial in the long run, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, so, you know, I, I think all of this is getting really interesting as we kind of, 
Uh, I don't know if we're at the end of that whole uh, employee tsunami they were talking about before, where at the beginning of the pandemic, people felt they were going to lose jobs. But now that we're at the end, they realize that it's pretty much their market. Um, You know, it it does shift things because, you know, I, I think it goes back. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, Lisa, but for me, I've tried to always position myself in a way that says, okay, yes, I'm being interviewed by them, but I'm also interviewing them to make sure it's the right place for me to be. I think the weight is becoming heavier on the, okay, employer, I'm interviewing you much more than you're interviewing me in this relationship or potential relationship. I think that weight has shifted and I hope it stays that way for a long while, frankly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right. What do we have this week? Yes, yes, yes. Well, let me, let me hop into the, well, no, let me let you go with the hell naw first and then we'll end on a positive note. Hell yeah. Hell naw. Okay. Well, my hell naw is a little bit of a apology slash reframe. Um, One of the really interesting things, um, uh, learning points, I think, is that, you know, when we share the hell yes and the hell nas on here, we've heard about it. We generally take the information from reputable news sites or, you know, firsthand information where we've heard from people who were involved in the incident. But a couple of weeks ago or a couple of episodes ago, I talked about Prince William and his alleged comment around how um, it was alien to see war in Europe vis-a-vis seeing war in Africa and Asia. And that was reported widely. I mean, it was on all sites, you know, left and right of the political wow. spectrum. I mean, I felt mm-hmm. pretty confident sharing that. As it turns out, he was, it seems like he was maybe misquoted or um, there was some information removed from the quote. I don't know whether purposefully, but it changed the context of his comment. So um, what he actually said was um, uh, everyone is horrified by what they are seeing. It's really horrifying. The news every day, it's just, it's almost unfathomable for our generation. It's very alien to see this in Europe. So the for our generation is Uh, the move. So he was saying for Generation X, for millennials, it is mm-hmm. um, not something we have grown up with, right? So he wasn't mm-hmm. saying that folks in Africa and Asia are more prone to um, war and that Europe is too civilized for war. It was more that mm. we live in it. We have not lived through something like this. I mean, I guess you could still argue that's debatable, but from a kind of long-term perspective, how it was taken with people attacking him about British history and all of that good stuff, not good stuff, bad stuff, right? Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. And so then that did come through. And I think a lot of these news outlets did amend their coverage, but it just shows how um, it's actually a good lesson in DEI, right? How you can remove a couple of words um, and change the meaning and change the context that can actually like shift a lot for a lot of people. So absolutely, yeah. uh, Mayor Culpa on my behalf, um, still don't love the Royals, but um, I will acknowledge that his comment was not as um, disgusting as I uh, at first thought. <laughs> well, you know, just in case the Queen or Prince William are listening, we, we right. just want to make sure we... Yeah, just in case. We get the record. Yeah, we're going to get the record straight just in case they're listening, right? Uh-huh. Well, 
I have two quick points as we wrap up the podcast to bring up. Usually we have a hell yeah and a hell nah. I've got first a hell maybe (laughs) because I'm not quite sure where I'm landing on this, right? I'm not sure. So hopefully many folks have seen that uh, Polo by Ralph Lauren has dropped a very exclusive line, a historic new collection that commemorates uh, Morehouse College and Spelman College. Uh, they are um, what we call brother and sister schools in the HBCU uh, landscape. Um, and Morehouse is also um, their, one of their most famous uh, alumni, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so Ralph Lauren launched this and Fortunately, I'm very happy that they had Black designers that were involved in the creation of this line. So yay for that line. However, what I think is really interesting, how soon we forget, back in 2008, Andre 3000, who's a member of OutKast, lost millions of dollars on his clothing line called Benjamin Bixby, which is very similar. Like as soon as I pulled up the Polo Ralph Lauren line, I looked at it and was like, why does this look familiar? I'm not quite sure. Let me look around. Lo and behold, it was Andre 3000's previous clothing line that really wasn't supported. And a lot of people said, Oh, we're just going to blame it on, you know, lack of support, especially by the black community or lack of timing that maybe he was ahead of his time. But I think it's a really curious hell, maybe, um, because I'm always trying to support black designers. So nothing taken away from the black designers that work with Ralph Lauren, but mm, I'm still thinking about Benjamin Bixby and what coulda, shoulda, woulda, kind of maybe could have happened with Andre 3000's line, which looks very similar. And some people have commented, especially on social media, that Andre 3000's version version might be even more stylish. So there you have it. Uh, A hell maybe, a big hell maybe. Um, And then my last point, my biggest hell yeah, look, let me tell you, we've, we've already talked a little bit about this during the podcast, but I think um, we just really need to name this particular statement. 100 Black male law deans and professors penned a support, uh, a letter of support um, for Katanji Brown Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation. All right. So this to me was incredible. Um, It was actually um, broken by Black Enterprise um, as far as their uh, article talking about who signed the letter, who wrote the letter, et cetera. I think it's really powerful that that type of allyship came forward. Um, We see, of course, a lot of Black women supporting Black women, but the fact that you had this many Black male uh, faculty, law professors, et cetera, who support without reservation. This nomination, I think, is really crucial. Um, And so I'm really thankful that, you know, we get to see this publicly. Um, And so one of the things I just wanted to read this quick quote that was in the letter, it says, we unanimously applaud and endorse without reservation President Joe Biden's nomination of Judge Jackson, who is truly one of our nation's brightest legal minds. From Judge Jackson's breathtaking credentials as an extraordinary jurist, to her unimpeachable character and unwavering integrity. We believe that she is eminently qualified to fill this historic position, right? So how cool is that, that you have allyship that comes forward so quickly? Um, Let's hope 
uh, that we continue to see this confirmation go through without a hitch. We know some folks are going to act a fool regardless, Lisa, because that's how diversity and inclusion works. However, uh, we want to make sure that all the uh, votes come in for um, for our our fave at this point. Also, too, I wanted to point out one more thing that they mentioned, too. Um, given this, the, the group that also wrote the letter said, while white men comprise roughly 30 percent of the nation's population, they hold over 70 percent of federal judiciary positions. Further, while 108 white men have served as justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, there have only been two black men and five women appointed to serve on the court. Of those five women, only one has been a woman of color. So given that, Lisa, we like our stats, we like our demographics, there it is. So I'm really excited about uh, Judge Jackson, um, hopefully helping the Supreme Court to to turn the corner a bit. So there we have it. That's my hell yeah. That's a good one. All right, we'll leave it there. (laughs) Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code FEISTY for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash FEISTY. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.